This is Attack of the 20th Century. Thank you for joining us as we explore science fiction, fantasy, and horror films of the 20th century. I'm your host, Jeff. And I'm your other host, Kim. Welcome to episode 32, where we review the Larry Cohen 1982 film, Q, The Winged Serpent. Look for us on Instagram and Facebook at Attack of the 20th Century. That's 20TH. We post our next movie selection there. You can comment, give your thoughts, and they just might make it on the air. First of all, we want to congratulate my brother Marcus and his new bride, Anna. They were both married last weekend. That's right. You guys know Marcus. He was on Star Trek The Motion Picture episode of our podcast, not the actual movie. <laughs> I was wondering if you are going to clarify that. <laughs> and then, of course, The Thing from this season. That's right. He's been on both seasons with us, and we're very excited for Marcus and Anna. Congrats to them both. Congrats. We also finished watching two different uh, TV series that you and I have both mentioned on this podcast. That's before. right. Current TV series. Moon Knight and Ted Lasso. Well, I guess Ted Lasso. We were behind on that, but we're, we're caught up now. We're caught up. So let's talk Moon Knight real quick. Sure. Uh, after one season, what do you think? Would you recommend Moon Knight to any of our listeners? I would. I uh, Just because I want to see what happens. I'm assuming, do we know? Has it been greenlit for a new season? Or I haven't seen that, but it doesn't mean anything. Okay. I think Marvel is pretty committed, or Disney's pretty committed to the Marvel properties. That's true. So I think they're going to make it work. I hope. I hope there's at least a second season, because there were so many loose ends. Um, and I, I feel like it was an in- intentional loose ends. We're, we're going to talk a lot about loose ends today, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, in there, are, And we talked a lot about this last episode with Alfred Hitchcock. Like, you can make loose ends work for you, or you can drop the ball on them, right? right. I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Moon, li- Moon Knight, not Moonlight, left me with enough, just enough loose ends that I, I want to see where it's going. Like, yeah. I feel like they have a plan, and I, I want to see what's coming next. So I'm hoping that there's at least a second season and some answers to some questions. Yeah. Or I may have to become a comic book junkie and go find some comic books. I don't know. <laughs> well, our son and I watched the movie Inception. Oh, yes. For the first time. <laughs> So you'll have to let us know how you guys feel about Inception, but Inception, the whole movie, you're kind of watching it and you're wondering what's going on, what's Mm -hmm. going on. I'm curious what's happening, but you're intrigued. So you keep watching it and you enjoy it. Right. The difference between the show Moon Knight and the movie Inception, it's all explained to you very well in the movie. Oh, okay. Like it ties it up in a nice little bow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not completely in a nice bow, but like in two and a half hours, they tell the story. Okay. Right. But in Moon Knight, you know, at the uh, last episode, you're still kind of wondering what's going on. Oh, there's a lot left unanswered. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of end on a cliffhanger. You've got that hope of like, okay, there's going to be there's going to be an explanation coming, right? We've got to see that next season. Yeah. I do think I've read a little bit of business news recently. I think Disney Plus is one of the only streaming services that's still kind of going strong. You know, everybody had a big boost during the pandemic, like uh-huh. when everybody was stuck at home watching whatever they could watch. Yeah. So like all the streaming services, Netflix in particular, like were through the roof with profits, and I think we're starting to kind of see the the after effects, like the, mm-hmm. the trickle down of that now. But I read somewhere that Disney Plus is still kind of holding its own. Okay. So, um, well, and this is probably why. They know? have a lot of properties that people care about. Right, exactly. Marvel, Star Wars, I yeah. mean, being the big two, right? Yeah, for sure. Those are the big two. Um, I snickered when you said Inception because what I forgot to tell you, 
Um, and a handful of our listeners will know that our oldest son had his wisdom teeth out yesterday. Uh-huh. And he mentioned several times on the way home from the doctor's office while he was still, you know, in a drugged stupor <laughs> that he should not have watched Inception before he had his wisdom teeth out. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty comical. That's funny. Yeah. I tried to get video, but we didn't, nothing was like cinematic, you know, YouTube gold oh. afterwards. He busted me trying to videotape him on oh. the ride home. So um, so no money from YouTube for No, us. yeah, we're not going to make any YouTube money off of a great post-Wisdom Tooth video. As far as Ted Lasso, we oh. we still really love these characters. We really care about them. And we're anxious to see season three, what happens. Yes. So we don't want to get too much into spoilers, but obviously you guys see, if you've watched Ted Lasso, by mid-season, you kind of see Nate... Uh, going in a different direction. Yeah. Nate the Great. What's that happening? That continues. Let's just say it, that okay. continues. Yes. And I want to see his redemption story. Now, I was right. hoping we would see it in the finale, which we didn't get. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, we'll have to just see what happens with him. I, I have hope because if Ted Lasso's, Lasso's about anything, it's about a good redemption story. So yeah. I, I do hope that there is a redemption story for Nate. I'm just... I did in that. I love the series still. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited for season three, which I think I read somewhere is going to drop maybe um, early fall, I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, the, uh, yeah, I, I walked with my sister the other morning and we had a discussion about this. We we're both frustrated about the same things. Like what yeah. happened there? And I won't get into spoilers, but um, yeah. Yeah, I could just throw punch a couple people in that last episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. is going on with them? Yeah. Yeah. But this is great, though, where season one really got us invested in all of these characters. Yeah. I would say there's probably six characters in this show that you care about. Yeah, you love them. Yeah. And you hate to see them screw up. Right, exactly. Let's talk about the movie we're going to watch this week, or we did watch this week. We're going to review Cue the Winged Serpent. <laughs> uh, and we should probably explain that we're not cueing the winged serpent to like come in onto the stage, right? <laughs> Cue the winged serpent, you're on. All right, so this is your spoiler warning. We will be talking spoilers, so if you don't like that, hit pause, go watch the movie, come back and join us later. Um, Also, this is a rated R movie for lots of language, lots of gore, and some gratuitous, well, that's a tough word to say, nudity (laughs) at the beginning. Gratuity. Gratuity. We'll just make it one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, it's pretty early on in the movie, and it ain't great. So there's your warning. So, Cue the Winged Serpent is a 1982 film. Yes, we're going right back into 1982 because that's a thing we're doing this season for some reason. Um, It involves two NYPD detectives, Shepard and Powell, who are trying to solve gruesome and bizarre murder cases that are cropping up in New York City um, that may or may not involve ritualistic Aztec sacrifices. Meanwhile, something really big and really scary and pretty sneaky is attacking New Yorkers from the sky. And then there's, of course, the slimy low-budget crook named Jimmy Quinn, and he happens to be the only person who actually knows what in the world is going on. So this was really the brainchild of Larry Cohen. Okay. He uh, he was actually... (laughs) 
hired to do a big budget film called I, the Jury, which was shooting in New York. Hmm. And then he got dismissed from that project, uh-huh. already had a hotel there, and said, I'm here. I need to do something. I need to work. <laughs> wow, this is a determined guy. Yes. So he wrote this script in six days. So pre-production lasted six days. Wow. He made a bunch of phone calls, recruited a bunch of actors, character actors at that, got them in to do this film, and uh, basically shooting lasted for two weeks. Wow. So this guy must have already had some clout, right? Because how do you call in... I mean, we can talk about the cast for a minute if you want. Like, he's called in Michael Moriarty, David Carradine. I mean, these aren't on par with, you know, I don't know, really huge names, but they're known. These are known names in the industry. They're very well-known character actors. He writes a script in six days and then can call these people and say, hey, come make my movie. Yeah, yeah. He must know some people. He knew some people and he leveraged that. He was a known entity. I think he was more well-known for being a script writer than, uh, uh, than a director. Okay. Anyway, so he went ahead and put together this movie. And, you know, one reason why I wanted us to review this film is that I've always been attracted to people that just get things done. Yes, you are. They hit some adversity and they just, you know, respond with something that's like, you know what? I'm going to take this and I'm going to make something good out of this mm. bad situation. The obstacle is the way. I think that's a stoic thing, right? Really? Marcus Aurelius or somebody said that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So when did we both see this film? Uh, you just saw it for the first time this week. Yes, I did. And then I saw it, uh, Joe Bob Briggs, if you're familiar with him, mm-hmm. just a little bit on Joe Bob. He used to have a show on TNT that I used to watch when I was a kid mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s and 90s. Right. And so he was one of these uh, horror movie hosts. Kind of like a creature feature type thing, right? Exactly. Or an Elvira personality. Correct. Well, it's creature feature guy, Dr. Paul Bearer. Dr. Paul Bearer. Yeah, he was right. the local guy. But, you, uh, you know, internationally, you would know Elvira. Gilbert Godfrey was one. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, there was the girl, what was her name? Rhonda Shear, uh, Up All Night USA. Up All Night. Oh, right. Remember her? Mm-hmm. I do vaguely remember that. <laughs> so Joe Bob was one of those, and he had a late night show, and I always really liked Joe Bob. He's funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on Shutter TV, which is a horror you know, internet station, mm-hmm. uh, they hired him to put together a horror show. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't have the best movies on Shutter. if you get a subscription. No, like, it's B-movies, mostly. They're mostly B-movies. Right. Every now and then, they have a budget, I think, so they'll get some A-movies for a month or two, and then okay. they'll lose them. Uh, but I watched uh, you know, one of Joe Bob's uh, marathons where he has a show over, you know, he'll do several movies in a weekend or whatnot. Right. Cue the Winged Serpent was one of them. Then uh. I watched it, and I didn't love it, but there was something kind of charming about the film. And I thought, you know what? This would be a good one for us to watch. Uh, at the time of this recording, by the way, it is free to watch on Pluto TV. Okay. So you could watch it there, but sometimes it is on Shudder. Uh, so you mentioned the cast. Let's go through that real quick. Okay. You mentioned Michael Moriarty. He plays Jimmy Quinn, and he's kind of our leading man, I guess. Sort of. He's he's maybe a bit of an anti-hero. He's kind of slimy. He's like an a ne'er-do-well, he's been, you know, dunked on by the system, but then also, like, didn't do anything to help himself out after that. And so he's just like a low-level crook that's never done much. And he seems a bit abusive to his girlfriend. Yeah. 
had you know, problems with drugs. Yeah, he's definitely had been a, in uh, done time. He's done time. Maybe sometimes not always his fault, but then also sometimes it was his fault. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Is he an antihero? I don't know if I know the purest definition of an antihero. Yeah, but he's, he's and we somewhere can go in that, that ballpark. And then his girlfriend is played by Candy Clark. And I was very surprised to see that she was an Academy uh, Award nominee. Right. And you for t- uh, American Graffiti. Oh, right. American. That's like a very well-known classic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, George Lucas's first hit, I guess okay. you'd say. Well before Star Wars. And then David Carradine, we all know. He plays <laughs> Detective Shepard, but we all know him from Kung Fu, of course. Exactly. I grew up watching a lot of Kung Fu with my dad. So <laughs> very knowledgeable of David Carradine. <laughs> Uh, Richard Roundtree plays Sergeant Powell, and some of you, if you're into black exploitation, which I don't know how many people are, but uh, you know he plays Shaft. I think a lot of people at least know who Shaft is. They know who Shaft. If they don't is. watch other black exploitation things, but yeah, so he's a young Shaft, basically. Right. Right. A few other notes about the cast. So the opening scene, that's basically at the uh, Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. There's that window washer. Right. He's actually played by. A real window washer that happened to be working at the Empire State Building that day. (laughs) (laughs) So this is one of those things I like about Larry Cohen, that he's one of these guerrilla filmmakers, right? Like he just shows up and he films and he kind of uses whatever's around him. Is that a term? That's like a movie making term? Yeah, yeah. Okay, guerrilla filmmakers. Yeah. So if you're like on the street where he's filming, you just got your part in a movie. Exactly. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, also Shepard, which is David Carradine, his wife in the movie is actually played by his real wife. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, Oh, you guys are on vacation in New York. Great. You're both in my movie. (laughs) Uh, and then at the very end, when the cops are at the top of the Chrysler building Mm -hmm. and they're fighting Q, those were actually construction, construction workers who were on site during the filming of the movie. So they (laughs) put cop uniforms in them. And if you notice, like, they're actually up there at the top of the building, and they're in those buckets and stuff, and they're unafraid of heights. This building is very tall. Yeah, an actor would be pretty deathly afraid of falling, right? Right. But, you know, that's part of the the genius, I guess, of using these guys here, because they're not afraid of heights. They're construction workers. construction workers workers in in a big city, they're used to heights. Okay, well, that's smart. That was good (laughs) use of your, uh, you know, what you got going on. That's right. That's crazy. So one thing that Joe Bob mentioned when he aired this movie was that the special effects of the flying serpent were basically done after the filming was complete. Oh, how do you do that? Well, so what they did was they gave these two guys, Randall William Cook and David Allen, uh, the video and basically said, I need you to insert the creature. And like he would coach them through what to put in there. Oh, wow. But... You know, and I guess in years past, what they would do is do the the creature effects first and then have the actors react to that. Okay, right. So this was kind of done backwards. That's interesting. Okay, random, but I just read an article today where like this is going to become a new, um, and you and I say this all the time, but like Idiocracy is coming true. Yeah. If you've seen the movie Idiocracy, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But product placement because we've cut out everybody switched to streaming services right right and we have cut out basically advertising slots Mm -hmm. so 
these services still need the income from the advertising market. Right. So they're like, how do we get advertisers to pay us money if we're not giving, if, you know, people want to pay to stream and not watch ad, you know, ads through yeah. their show or their movie or whatever. So it's now becoming a product placement game. Um, so these companies are figuring out ways to, after shows have filmed, to superimpose or CGI products kind of naturally they're trying to figure out how to make it more organic to stick a product okay. into a show that's already been filmed and that's basically what these guys have done with the monster right <laughs> right <laughs> so like let's say you know character in, in ted lasso is walking down a street in london well they can cgi in a billboard that's got doritos on it or something so oh. ted lasso walks by a billboard with doritos or, or whatever it is they're trying to stick in okay you know, it's kind of a 2d thing but they're working on getting more 3d things in so you see a bag of mcdonald's sitting on someone's dining room when they walk into their house you know or whatever oh so this is still a thing like or wow. it's becoming a more advanced thing where you post-production you're working something into what's already been filmed that's crazy isn't that nuts yeah Unfortunately, it sounds annoying, too, though. Yeah, yeah. I will say the article I read was they're trying to do it cautiously so it's not truly idiocracy where everything is a billboard, everything is an ad. Yeah. You know, and again, you'll have to look that up if you don't know that reference. Yeah. <laughs> President Camacho Mountain Dew Johnson, or <laughs> yeah, I don't know what exactly. his name was. <laughs> Everybody's clothing is covered in ads. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the music of this film was done by a fellow named Robert Ragland. Something that was kind of interesting was Michael Moriarty actually plays and sings. And so there was mm -hmm. that scene that uh, Larry Cohen wrote into the film. So it's where he's trying out for to play at this bar. Right. And uh, yeah, it's kind of odd. You know, he does a lot of playing and singing the same notes at the same time. Right. But they also recorded Michael Moriarty singing and playing a song. And they put it in the film. Oh, seriously. That whole escape scene where he's trying to get away from the thugs and he goes down the fire ramp. Yeah. And we were like, who's singing? Because there was this kind of bluesy wailing going yeah, on. Yeah, I couldn't figure out if that was like, we're supposed to be hearing that from like a local bar while he's on the run or if that yeah. was like soundtrack music. It was it was odd. Well, it was pre-recorded. this actor uh, playing and singing basically odd scat jazz. Right. It's very, I don't know, improvisational. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It feels very 1970s, even though this film's from the 1980s. Yes, yeah. But uh, yeah, so we were kind of confused. It was a little odd, I would say. <laughs> but Michael Moriarty has some jazz talent, apparently. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's talented, though. Right. The rest of the music in the film, I don't remember a whole lot of it. I think there was a lot of eerie kind of stuff, because obviously you're dealing with human sacrifice, mm -hmm. you're dealing with a flying serpent killing people. <laughs> There's kind of a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> it was odd to have some jazz thrown in the mix there. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we just jump into standouts and setbacks? Sounds good. The first standout I'll mention is Michael Moriarty's performance. Particularly the, the scene where he's negotiating with the city of New York. <laughs> if uh, you've seen the film, you know, we've alluded to this already, but he's basically a guy that grew up on the streets, apparently got framed by the cops for a crime he didn't it commit. Seems like at a young age. At a young age. So then he was in prison for a while, got out of prison, and now at this point, like he's. It's jaded. a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Now he's doing petty crimes. He got busted at another time. Mm hmm. He's uh, been running with the wrong crowd. He got into drugs, you know, made a lot of bad decisions. Right. And the whole beginning of this film kind of goes through one of those bad decisions. He gets in on a, uh, <laughs> a heist of a jewelry store. Right. 
And he's not very good either, right? So no. he basically goes, they go in and rob the place, but he leaves early with the jewels and runs because right. he forgot the key or somebody else had the keys. That's right. Exactly. He, he's supposed to be, he just wants to be the getaway driver. Right. But they're, these bigger, tougher thugs are basically forcing him to carry a gun, come in with them, be part of the heist. He doesn't have the keys to the car, so he can't really even make a getaway. And he kind of just—it seems like he panics and runs, but he happens yeah. to have a case of jewels with him when he runs. So of course, then the bad guys are going to be after him most of the rest of the movie. He just—it's like he can't get it right. He can't get it right. No. But he does have this beautiful moment, right, where he discovers Q. Right. At least that gigantic egg. The winged serpent. The winged serpent. <laughs> and he stumbles on this dead body, the 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 topless woman that was at the beginning of the film who has right. this bracelet on her ankle. Right. And so he he's able to use this to his advantage. Exactly. So then he gets busted by the cops. And then there's these killings that are happening. And people are starting to realize, like, there's something on the loose that is killing yeah, these people. Yeah, something is picking people off. And we're not sure what. But he goes into this room, and it's basically uh, him coming into his own. Yeah, right? yeah. He feels some power for the first time in his life. Exactly. He's not the bottom of the pecking order right. at this moment. So at this point, you know, he's a loser who's now in a winning situation. Mm-hmm. He's a small town crook who's now the big man. He even calls himself big man. Oh, that yeah, he does. And, and he's kind of a little skinny, wormy guy. And he's he's zany, quirky. It's almost... I don't know, like the whole, you just never know what's going to come out of his mouth almost. Yeah. You know, like he's just a little slightly unhinged yeah. as a human. Yeah. And you don't know if it's the after effects of drugs or what, or they're right. being raised on the streets and he's around all these cops and, right. you know, like, I don't know, people that make decisions in meetings, City right? City council members. I don't know what these guys, there's a whole bunch of people in this room that seem like top dogs in New York City. Yeah. And so when you look at this guy... There's no reason we should cheer for him because, <laughs> like we said, like he's made a ton of bad decisions. He apparently has beaten his wife, or his girlfriend, rather. Right. And, uh, you know, done drugs. And th- this isn't a guy you would typically have as your hero. You called him an anti-hero. Earlier. Right, right. But he goes in this uh, meeting, and he kind of wins you over. He's got this uh, underdog feel to him. Underdog feel, yeah. And there was a scene in particular where Richard Roundtree's character says to him, and, the, and Richard Rontree's character had kind of roughed him up a little bit. Not too yeah. bad, but, you know, had manhandled him. Yeah, yeah. And belittled him. He was playing bad cop for sure. Uh, but he, he says, hey, a man died yesterday. You had the information that could have prevented that. Mm-hmm. How does that make you feel? And he's like, I feel okay. I'm preventing the murder of tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. And there were a lot of things they played with him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the way he responded was strong and powerful. And I thought it was kind of cool. Like you're seeing, again, you're seeing this underdog character kind of rise to the occasion. Like they say, well, today's, uh, you know, the banks are closed today. We'll open them. Right. He's like, you guys are the guys with power. Make it happen. Make it happen. They say he demands a million dollars. Yeah. They're like, are you kidding me? You know, like who would give you a million dollars basically? Yeah. He says, you give a random person on the streets millions of dollars in the lottery every day or right. every week. You can do something for me because what I'm doing is going to save you tens of millions of dollars. Right. So just even that whole, uh, that whole scene alone, I'm giving a standout to and to M- Michael Moriarty for selling it. Yeah. He did sell it for sure. Um, okay, so I'm going to give a standout. This is like a 
a left-handed or a um, half-hearted. It's not a half-hearted standout. It's a full standout for the makeup effects and the practical effects in this movie. Um, the the parts that were intended to be gory were legitimately gory and looked gross to the point where I had to cover my face. Like I I did not want to see. Uh, the gore. So I don't know who the makeup team was or the special effects people on this Mm -hmm. movie, but they did a very good job of making flesh look like flesh, blood look like blood. This was not a hammer horror where you get that Crayola red paint. (laughs) You know, this was like, this looked like body parts. And it was pretty disgusting. Even from the very beginning, we have that window washer that, you know, something swoops out of the sky and removes his head. And then his, the rest of his body, you know, window washers on high rises, they work in those scaffolding type, I don't know what they're called. Apparatuses, yeah. I don't know. We live in Central Florida. We don't have high rises. (laughs) I mean, Tampa and Orlando do, but we live far from there. So um, so whatever they're, you know, this apparatus that a window washer would scale a building in, like his body is left there leaning against the window and, and it's, it's pretty effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we see a dead, bloated body that washes ashore. I'm assuming from the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. Um, we have there's a whole lot of human filleting happening here. I don't even know if that's like the right term, but this whole Aztec ritual thing that's happening, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute more. Um, they actually show us this priest type person. He's wearing a mask and whatnot about to or not about to like he starts filleting human flesh um and that's as gross as it sounds guys like it looks i mean you can tell that obviously that's not a real human that they're cutting on but it has a enough of a flesh-like appearance that i covered my eyes or turned away and and didn't watch like waited for jeff to tell me okay you can watch now because it (laughs) it was that gross it was that gross i was not okay with it so Kudos to them for being realistic, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was... Very convincing. It was inf- effective, yes. Yeah, and even in that third act, the final guy that they were uh, sacrificing, like they cut his neck, they went down his chest. Yeah. And then, you know, the cops bust in on him, and that guy stands up, and he's got blood, like, dripping down right. his body. Now the cops, for some reason, shoot him. <laughs> I know. I never. I was like, wait, that's that's the victim here. Why are you shooting him? <laughs> the cop was like, he's he was coming at me. He was coming at me. He knew he'd screwed up. Right. But yeah, that's very convincing. You're right. I agree with you. That's not hammer horror blood at all. That's like no. it was very convincing. Yeah, I don't know what they were using, but they they nailed the gore effects for sure. All right, and then I don't think there's any doubt about it. This is a B movie. Sure, right? for this sure. This isn't a Hollywood, you know, blockbuster film by any means. No. But, you know, I want to give a shout out to David Carradine, who's got some natural film charisma. Mm-hmm. There's this whole detective plot that he helps keep moving along. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he played it just right. He wasn't overly serious. No. You know, I felt like if you go too serious, man, you're in like B movie silliness. Right, right. right. There's that scene in particular where, like, why can't people see this flying serpent in the sky of New York? Yeah, because it is like nobody's seeing it. It's happening, but nobody can see this thing come fly through and swoop up people. Right. So this one guy asked that question of David Carradine, and it's the same question we all have. Well, he explains it in a way that, like, okay, you just kind of roll with it. He, right. Right, like yours, this the serpent's so smart that it always flies. It swoops down when you're gonna look up and be blinded by the sun. Right, right. that's what 
the point he's trying to make. And the way he says it, he kind of tilts his head and he does his hands in a way and he's got kind of a smile going on. And the way he sells it is very effective. You say, well, okay, I'll just roll with it. I wish we had video, like this should be a YouTube. Um. Of me explaining? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just like went into character there. You guys can't see his hands were up in the air. Like he became David Carradine for a minute. It was pretty comical. <laughs> but I think you're right. I agree with you that... I'm just imagining, like, this guy's a New York City detective. He's seen a lot of weird junk, right? And so he's just trying to figure out what is happening. This is more just New York weirdness, big city weirdness. I don't know what's happening, but let me explain it this way. Yeah, It kind of rolls with the punches. Like, I'm assuming, I'm not a big city girl, but... Uh, I'm assuming, like, if you've seen a lot of junk working your career in a giant city like that, you're you're kind of like, okay, well, I don't know. This is weird, but this is probably what's happening. And he just right. kind of rolls with things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's convincing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he get, he gets a standout for me. Just that charisma. I think in a lesser actor's hands, this right. would just be laughable. Like these lines that he's right. saying... And maybe we also give David Carradine a little bit of a pass because we have that Kung Fu background with him where he's kind of this esoteric, you know, guru of sorts. And I don't know. It's just just part of David Carradine's charisma. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation reminds me of the movie that we did last year, Battle Beyond the Stars. Okay. Which was also a B movie, if Mm -hmm. you remember. Oh, yeah. But we talked about Robert Vaughn. The actor that he was also in the original Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. and Battle Beyond the Stars was basically the Magnificent Seven in space, right? And he comes and plays the same kind of character he did in the original, but you get a, a legitimate actor who's good at his craft, mm-hmm. and he's delivering these lines, and he's actually better than the material. Sure, okay. And he makes it work. He elevates it, mm. you know, to be uh, beyond. What it, yeah. <laughs> beyond the stars. Battle beyond the stars. <laughs> okay, I could see that. I could see that. All right, so before we get into setbacks, there are some observations I wanted to share with you. Okay. Because I think that'll lend itself to the uh, ensuing discussion. All right. When I did a little research as far as what people like about this movie or don't like about this movie, something that was different is that opinions are all over the place about this movie. And people zero in on different aspects of the film. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder why. Like, why is this movie different? Right. And I feel like there are basically three separate films that are stitched together in this one movie. Oh, I could see that. Right. So, first of all, you have it an old school monster movie. You have a stop motion monster that's wreaking havoc, mm-hmm. swooping down, grabbing people out of pools pulling topless women off of uh, building tops, lopping off heads of window washers, terrorizing the cities. You see blood dripping down on people. They're screaming. Right. So that's a story in and of itself right there. That's a story in and of itself. Then, of course, you have this detective story that's going on that's really led by David Carradine, Richard Roundtree. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out why are these people being skinned in these ritualistic murders? Right. And so you have this cop dynamic, you know, trying to, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, and they have the monster deaths they're trying to detect also, right? So they have the monster deaths and they're not necessarily lining up with these ritualistic killings. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of having to deal with both and, and put the pieces together and 
Right. Do they have anything to do with each other? Do they not? I mean, it's a crime drama, right? Right, right. So that, that, that's exactly right. So part of this is a crime drama, and it's a movie in itself, really. Like, yeah, well, Why absolutely. are these uh, sacrifices happening in New York in modern mm-hmm. times? And I'm mm-hmm. saying modern times in air quotes. Yeah, 1982 <laughs> modern times. <laughs> they were modern for the times. That's right. Uh, but then there's this third film that's put into this movie, and it probably gets the most press or most prevalence, and that's the story of a small-town crook trying to get by. Right. You know, so this is, of course, Michael Moriarty's character, Jimmy, the story of him, you know, his uh, rough upbringing, like trying to do a job with, you know, hoodlums, that not going right, and then him trying to hold the city hostage. Right. You know, does how does that work out? You know, so I feel like that's its own film, too, right? Exactly. It's like a character study. It is, for sure, for sure. He's always the bottom of the heap. Like, he's always kind of getting dunked on. Life is hard for him. Yeah. But he, he seizes the moment. Like, this is the one chance he has to kind of have the upper hand. Right. Um, you know, he's he's trying to be a crook amongst... He's trying to be a goldfish swimming with the sharks of New York, right? Right. Because this is the one time he gets the chance to try and be a shark. Yeah, yeah. So, again, three movies, uh, monster movie, detective story, and then a character study. And I feel like the weakness, the setback that I want to talk about right now is that you don't really get much subplot for each of these elements. No, yeah. For that to make sense. Mm-hmm. And because it's all put together, like it's thrown together, there's something unrewarding about uh, aspects of this. Yeah. And I'll yeah. give you an example, the monster movie aspect. So you got this monster flying around, killing people. There's the scenes where like people are getting blood dripped on them and they're screaming. Right. But you're not really seeing a whole lot of like the town at panic. No, you're really not. Okay. And so let's give a little bit of background here because I don't think we've mentioned this. This monster's living at the top of the Chrysler building. Right. Right. And so we get all these swooping vistas, like the camera work. This is pre drone era. So I'm not even sure how they did this helicopter. camera. Oh, helicopter. Wow. Okay. Um, so we're getting all these swooping dive bomb shots through New York where this monster is picking people off of roof- rooftops, you know, women sunbathing. Some guy swimming in a pool. I guess there's a lot of rooftop action in a big city like that. I, I mean, I don't know. We don't live in a high-rise city, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you would, and there are, there is a scene. It's really like a telling scene where people in downtown Man- Manhattan are like getting blood dripped on them from this, you know, whatever recent attack had just happened. Yeah. If that's going on, and more and more people are going missing, and it's not like like we had the one window washer he gets his head lopped off and his body's still there, but it seems like everybody else is a victim. Like the bodies go disappearing and there might be like blood raining on the city, but people are disappearing and there's blood raining on the city and the city is not in utter terror. Right. Why not? Right. (laughs) Like, yeah. In any other monster movie, there's a a reaction. Right. And it kind of feels like normal life just continues. Yeah, a monster should be terrorizing wherever it is. That's what mm-hmm. monsters do, right? right? Like people should be scared. That's yeah. what a monster does. Right. That's why they're monsters. <laughs> so yeah, you, so you don't get aspects of a t- traditional monster film right. in this movie. Also, this whole idea of these Aztec killings. Mm. I mean, this is really a cocktail of really good ideas. Right. You know, so the, I like this idea of you know, people willingly being murdered 
you know, like not sedated or anything. No, it's a cult-like following. Yeah. Not even a cult-like. It is a cult following. You know, you could really make a whole movie out of just that. Oh, absolutely. I think this movie doesn't really explain why these people do this. Now, they ask questions like you and I would. Right. Like, why does this guy that has a family move to New York to get uh, willingly give himself to be murdered? Right. And they ask the question... But I don't really, I don't really feel like they answered it. You know, no. it doesn't really make sense. You know, do they really worship this this kind of lizard bird? Yeah. Do they yeah. really worship that? And what it, what's in it for them? Exactly. What's in it for them? So, okay. So I'm going to push back a little bit. I know you love like just the idea behind this guy. What's his name? The the director, the writer, Larry the, Cohen. Larry Cohen. He does all the things here. It's amazing that in six days he pulls off what he pulls off, right? Yeah. But I would say, like, this problem, where we basically have three separate movies crammed into one, that's an editing problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if he'd had the time and the budget Mm -hmm. and the editors to come behind him and say, hey, we see what you're doing here, but you need to piece these things together. Yeah. We've got to cut this, add this. Right. I think he could have pulled it off. Yeah. But he didn't have that. He didn't have the time. He didn't have the budget. He didn't have the team of editors. Right. You know, and, you know, I won't repeat word for word what Hemingway has taught us, but we know that Hemingway has said the first draft of anything is not good, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So I, I, that's what I think happened here. It's like he had all these big ideas and kind of crammed them into one thing, but didn't have the benefit of the editors and the time. Yeah. And the money. Money always helps. Yeah. Obviously. Resources would have helped. It's very ambitious, and I guess that's why I look at it a little bit, you know, with romantic eyes. Like, he's really going for the gold. Right. And you and I, we've talked to share this before, like, we go on walks, so we talk about uh, yeah. our, the movie ahead of time. I think if this was a Netflix series, which mm. was a medium he didn't have at the time. Right. Like, you could tell these stories, mm-hmm. and it, you could interweave them, and it could work. But you really need a good six hours to tell that story. Right. Not well, two. Because this is essentially Stranger Things, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got like big government. It's not exactly the same, but Stranger right. Things has been a series where they could explain like there's a big government cover up. There's like big science doing weird things, but it's also a monster movie. Right. It's also a bit of a crime drama. It's yeah. also this, you know, family dynamic, right. multiple family dynamics, small town life. Like you can do that. In, over a series where you can't do that, you know, in a two-hour movie. You yeah. just can't. Well, I said all that to say, yeah, you get bonus points for trying. Yeah, he tried. <laughs> he definitely tried. <laughs> but there are a lot of subplots that don't make a whole lot of sense because you didn't have time to tell the story. And I really think the, the biggest gaping uh, mystery or, like, the thing that doesn't make the most sense are people giving themselves up to be killed for this god. Right. When they're like, are they of Aztec descent? You exactly. know, uh, like, are they a cult? You, know, you told nothing about this. No, and we don't really even know. We don't have a solid connection between the monster and the Aztec. Like, so the monster's name is Quetzalcoatl, and that's an yeah. ancient Aztec word. But we never have a strong tie in to like, is the monster, the Aztec god that these people are worshiping, or is it just happens that all of this is happening at the same time? There's never a full right. explanation of why these two things would be happening. Yeah. It's unclear if all these sacrifices really did wake this monster up. Exactly. Did it wake the monster up? Does it 
What does it have to do with the monster, really? We don't know. We don't, we don't know. know. <laughs> and if it is a god, how come they were able to just gun it down at the end? Right, yeah. They basically just shot it with bullets and it died. Enough bullets that sound like <laughs> laser guns. <laughs> They're semi-automatic or automatic weapons that the police are using against this thing. Maybe that should be a setback we'll throw in here. Okay. The automatic weapons sound like pew, 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 pew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Star Wars guns. <laughs> Well, they were. Uh, I read where they were going for like King Kong at the end. You know, the shooting, oh, the firing, yeah, okay. something at the top of the, the. You know, of course, that's Empire State Building or yeah. World Trade Center, depending. Okay, on so kudos to them. We'll throw that back to a standout. Like I like that they chose the Chrysler Building and not. Yeah. You know, it's a good looking building. It is a good looking, very Art Deco, and I don't. I don't think it gets used a lot. Yeah. I'm not an expert on what buildings from New York get used in movies, but I think we see the Empire State Building, obviously. And of course, you know, we've got Twin, Twin Towers Tower stuff. Easily. Yeah, we see a lot. But yeah, the Chrysler building's a cool building. Yeah. Uh, so another setback I'll throw out is that you don't really feel anything for any of the characters. Other than that scene where I talked about where Michael Moriarty's character, Jimmy, that you get stirred up a little bit because right. you see a guy kind of come into his own. And you do get to hear a smidge of his backstory. Like, he yeah. he puts it out there like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, I've made my bad choices. But that first time I spent in the slammer, that was on y'all. Like, yeah. you you framed me yeah. as a 19-year-old, or what, I think he says he, he's some young age. Right. Um, so why should he help the cops when the cops framed pretty, him? Exactly. He's pretty slimy the whole movie. But that, that little scene, you're like, oh, man, this guy's a victim of his circumstances, yeah. right? right. And so you feel for him, but you get backstory about him. You get some insight into, you know, him. So that's right. character development. And I feel like that's a setback here is like most of the characters you don't know anything about. No. And therefore yeah. you don't care about them. So Richard Roundtree, the police officer, he gets eaten in the third act. Yeah. And you don't really care. No, it's like, well, he, I mean, he was really kind of a, he played bad cop most of the movie, right? Yeah. He, Slap people around and was kind of a jerk. So yeah. you're like, well, I, you know, he got eaten. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you really have no. Yeah. None of the victims you care about. No connection too much. there. Right. Exactly. Even David Carradine, he doesn't get eaten, but you're, you're still, I think if he would have gotten eaten, I would have been slightly more sad for him, but not much. Right. You know. Right. There's two bad guys that Michael Moriarty's character convinced, he convinces them to, they're after him because they're the crooks, the, the top dog crooks that <laughs> yeah. wanted him to be part of the jewelry yeah. heist, right? And now they're after him. He's like, what did you do with our jewelry? And of course, because he's kind of hapless and unlucky, he lost the jewelry. He got hit by a car. <laughs> Anyhow, I say all that to say, like, they're coming to kill him or beat it out of him or something. And he leads them up the ladder to where the nest of Q is and gets them eaten. And you're like, good, that's what they deserve. Yeah. You know, like, you don't, I don't know. It's like, yeah. yeah that was he, like a cool moment, actually, because you're like, all right, well, there's... Somebody that's eaten that you actually wanted to get Right, eaten. right. Yeah, that's true. You're kind of one of them. But still, like, I don't know. There's just such little connection to all these humans that you want to... That could be, like, a ding against Moriarty's character. Like, he's heartless. He's cold. He let these guys be eaten by the monster. <laughs> right. But then it's also, like, 
Well, we kind of wanted those guys to be eaten because yeah. they were you just even like them bigger more bull than lives. Him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's where like it's all muddled. You, you don't care enough about any of these characters for it to matter. Preferably, they would have a handful of characters you do care about. We right. talked about Ted Lasso. We again, love those though, characters. Again, though, they had several episodes to get you to care about them. Exactly, yeah. And this would have benefited from a longer show. In maybe. a movie context. Or some editing. Yeah, in a movie context, you're probably going to care about a couple characters. Right. And I don't feel like you care enough about David Carradine's character because you don't, they don't really go into anything that, you know, gets you invested in him. Right, right. Other than he gets screen time. Like yeah. you see him investigating. Well, you see him with his wife once, but even then there's no, there's really no point to that just to sh- other than to show he has a wife. Right. You know. And he's researching the, the deaths. Right, right. He is doing his due diligence, I guess, because he's talking to like, you know. People that know the ancient Aztec culture and that sort of thing. Right. But that's about it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's a setback. I mean, traditionally, you would have some characters you actually care about. Right. Right. Again, I think that's something that suffers because it is so quick. Like, the turnaround on the yeah. production of this thing. is just too quick. Right. Too quick. Um, so, I think my stop, my um, setback is the stop motion here. I love stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, this one looked a little plasticky to me. Yeah, And I don't know if that's because I don't know enough about filming technology to know like if this is a, this is just a happenstance because we're filming this in 1982. So our filming techniques are better, but it plays up the plasticness of our monster. Right. I don't know. But it just doesn't like I felt um, this monster was less convincing than, say, a real Ray Harryhausen monster yeah. from 20 years ago you know, right. earlier. Right. No, I agree with that. And I think a lot of that has to do with budget. Um, and then also, this is a 1982 film with a, a monster that would have looked better in a 1950s or exactly. 1960s film. Yeah, this monster would have been fine 20, 30 years earlier. Yeah. But in this film, it, it just, I don't know, It's she's a little plastic looking. And this goes back to... Like people like this movie or dislike this movie for different reasons. Some people grew up liking this movie because of the stop motion monster. Okay. You know, and I think one of our comments that we're going to read on from Instagram basically is they like the stop motion. Sure, sure, I get that. But I think as a kind of an indifferent observer, you're watching this film and it has a look to it, a gritty look to it. Mm-hmm. That the, the filming, if you watch it, it looks very ni- late 1970s. It does not look like the other 1982 movies we review- we no. have reviewed, for no. sure. It looks like it's using some older technology. So that's probably some of that low budget stuff. Exactly. I was about to say, that's probably a budget issue right there, right? But still, every time the stop motion monster comes into screen... Uh-huh. Like when you see the whole mo- the whole monster flying or right. or coming at you, it's very obviously like it takes you out of the film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. like you were like, okay, that's fake. <laughs> right, exactly. It was better earlier in the movie. We were just seeing like wings flapping, yeah. the swooping uh, camera effects, but we weren't seeing the whole monster. We would see claws occasionally. Yeah, a claw comes down and grabs a guy that out of a effective. pool. That was effective. This is a classic case of keep your monster in the dark, right? Yeah. Like, I think they should have done that. They should have done that It more. would have been more effective. Yeah. No, I agree. I liked the, the baby monster coming out, and they were shooting it. Like, that looked pretty good, I felt like. Those right. effects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then, and I liked when the monster was flying, and you didn't see him, but you saw his shadow against the oh, buildings. Oh, yeah, yeah. The shadow effects were neat. That was cool. So, 
I think people that listen to us on a semi-regular basis know that I'm not the horror buff here and I don't, mm-hmm. and you even don't like truly scary things. <laughs> we review horror movies, but we're not like true horror buffs. Yeah. And I, I would say out of all the horror elements of the film, I like the monster the most. So for yeah. those people who really love the stop motion and they're, and they're going in that direction with this, right. I get it. I get it because it's the funnest part of the movie. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not meant to be a fun movie, but you know, I, I like that. Yeah. I think something we talked about when we were walking back to your three observations, like there's three separate movies, people that love this for the stop motion. I think they're able to separate it out from the rest of the movie. Like they focus yeah. on like, this is a horror movie. We're, we're bringing this stop motion monster into the 1980s. And so yeah. they appreciate that and they block out the rest of it. Right? right. And the people who love it for the crime drama aspect of it, they can focus in on that. And kind of ignore the other stuff that is like, meh, it doesn't really add to the crime drama. Right. And the same with the whole, you know, the small town crook, Michael Moriarty's character, Jimmy Quinn. Like if you're, yeah. I think Jim Bob, that's his. Joe Bob, yeah. Joe Bob, whatever his name is. <laughs> that's Joe Bob. That's what he focuses in on. Right. He loves that whole like exposure of this character. And, right. And understanding what makes him tick and, and why this is kind of his comeuppance, yeah. you know. Um, again, those people are able to, to focus in on that aspect of the story and just let the horror and the gross Aztec murder stuff be side pieces. Yeah. Whereas we're, I think the trouble is we're trying to look at this as a whole thing. Right. And that's when it, it struggles. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just go ahead and go into the final summations All right. here. So, uh, what say you, Kim, yay or nay? Well... I, I have enjoyed the discussions we've had, so I don't want to just give it like an unequivocal nay. I probably never will watch this again, and it is a nay for me. Um, but it has conjured up some interesting discussions, um, just looking at the craft, how quickly things can be made, and, and what kind of like ingenious timing and planning and, and whatever that must take. But on the flip side of that, if I put my mom hat on, like this, it's gross to me. I don't love the gory horror, you yeah. know, um, it, there's some over the top profanity and nudity that just doesn't, doesn't add to the plot at all. It doesn't need mm-hmm. to be there. So I, you know, that might make me sound like a stick in the mud, but that's, that's who I am. That's a life I live. Like it's <laughs> not, you know, this is no Jane Austen movie. Yeah. Um, it's good for discussion, but as like a weekend, like this is a fun monster movie to watch. I'd rather watch Jason and the Argonauts any day. Right. 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 So it's an A for me. Okay. Well, uh, you know, what I would say is you don't have to watch this film. It's not like mandatory viewing. There's right. a lot of movies that I would say definitely you got to go see it mm-hmm. at least once. Enjoy this movie experience. And I don't think uh, if you live your whole life and miss this film, I think you're probably just okay. In <laughs> You'll life. be all right. You'll be all right. Uh, I will say if you watch it... Um, with Joe Bob's commentary, the way I watched it the first time, it was better. Uh, and unfortunately, Shutter doesn't have the rights at this moment of the recording. Uh, they didn't. They don't have the rights to cue. Oh, yeah. So you can't watch the movie with his commentary. But you can watch his commentary, right? You can watch his commentary. Like we watched it after the fact. But it really helped because he tells the story in the beginning. You watch the film, and every commercial break, he comes in and gives you a little spiel. You know what I like about that? And I don't always agree with Joe Bob or love everything he does. But we learned this when we we talked about this when we watched The Birds. It causes you to pause and remember what's just happened in the script, right? Because you tend to get into the high points, you know, the denouement or whatever you want Mm -hmm. to say of the movie, and you forget 
what's happened to yeah. make the movie what it is at that point. And so he does force you to do that. And that's, that is nice. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. I like, I like what you just said there. Cause you're basically processing the movie. Uh, you pause, you process, mm-hmm. and then you go a little further, you process. So I do miss, you know, greatly the, the idea of a, a horror host, you know, like yeah, a movie Yeah, does nobody host. do that anymore? Except for Joe On Biden. the internet. There's internet. Oh, people okay. That do it. Okay, people um, do it. And, you know, we don't really watch TV anymore, so we yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe it happens but I think on it a local is kind station. Of, like it's it seen its to. heyday already. Right? So you mentioned earlier, Creature Feature, that was a local thing? Yeah. Like Dr. Paul Bear was just like a Central he was a local Florida guy. guy. Oh, that's cool. There were, I, I don't know there if I were, knew that. Horror hosts all over the country. Okay. So like a Vampira, you've heard of her. Uh, she was a local uh, horror host. Right. But then she got picked up. Her show got picked up by a bigger... Oh, it got like syndicated or Got something. syndicated, yeah. Ah. So, so that's how it worked. And, uh, you know, Elvira was kind of the same way. Like she started, then it like it grew into a big phenomenon. Yeah, she's kind of huge. Like everybody knows. And that wasn't a joke. Well, she's very huge. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I went there. Uh, yeah, but yeah, she went national, right? Maybe yeah. she's international. I have no idea, but she's oh, yeah. well known. Yeah, now she's like a, a icon, right? Right, right. Um, but yeah, it used to have that. USA, it used to have like Commander USA. He was a dude with a... Dark hair and a mustache, and he had like a, a silly uh, superhero costume on. It was like red, white, and blue. Oh, I don't remember, you don't remember this him? guy. No. He had Rhonda Shear. We talked about that. Uh, and then Gilbert Godfrey did it for a while. Right. Yeah, I forgot Gilbert Godfrey so, did that. So all of that was during the 70s and 80s. Like when I was growing up in the 80s, like these are the shows I would watch. Right. Yeah. And then I felt like that helped my understanding of the films, you know, or the oh, appreciation. Because sure. yeah. you have somebody giving commentary and they're in those breaks. have a few comments about this film on Instagram. Old but not obsolete wrote proper fun 80s monster cheesy flick. Thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. (laughs) Rob of 13 said fantastic stop animation. Okay, so he liked the monster. He liked the monster. Awesome. AC Dempsey says looks ravaging. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then Rob of 13 also said so dope. So dope. All right. So yeah, some fans. Yeah, we do have some fans. Well, good. I'm glad they enjoyed it. Well, obviously, those fans are not alone, even though I don't join them. Uh, because if you look at the Rotten Tomato scores, like the audience score is only 43%, which seems a little rough. But the tomato meter, the critic score is 72%. So I, I haven't dug into that to find out why, but there's some critics out there that obviously really like this movie. Yeah. So these guys are in good company. Yeah, good With deal. movie critics. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we did switch to a podcast that's every other week. That's right. What are we watching two weeks from now? All right, in two weeks, we will be covering The Fifth Element. The Fifth Element is a PG-13 movie from 1997, and IMDb tells us, in the colorful future, a cab driver, played by Bruce Willis, unwittingly becomes the central figure in the search for a legendary cosmic weapon to keep evil and Mr. Zorg at bay. 
And if you are not familiar with this, there's lots of recognizable characters yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, you know this film probably. You've seen yeah. it. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And I believe you can watch it free on Amazon Prime currently. Perfect. Yes. Right? So yes. yeah. So join us in watching that over the next couple of weeks and we'll chat about it. All right. Yeah. Have a great time, guys. All right. Enjoy your movies. Peace out, guys. Peace out. Peace out.